Jerry Ratcliffe here with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Rachel Tuffin is the Director of Knowledge and Innovation at the College of Policing for England and Wales. We discuss the unique national role that the college has across law enforcement, policy and training. you've listened to recent episodes, you'll know that I'm revisiting theme tunes from classic TV cop shows. The show you just heard ran in the late 1970s and had over 90 episodes. Did you get it? The theme you heard was from season two, a funkier change-up from the darker, more brooding season one theme. I'll play a snippet of that at the end of this episode. I'm sure you know the show, and it was a classic, certainly more so than last month's show when I had the theme from TJ Hooker. Look, I know a young lady who was a particular fan, so I'm not going to bag on TJ Hooker too much, but let's just say that this month is a little more old school. What's not old school is how I recorded this month's episode. If you're lucky, academia can sometimes provide opportunities for travel, a rare luxury that provides a chance to catch up with people from around the world. However, COVID-19 has rather curtailed my normal adventures, so the internet allowed me a chance to catch up with an old friend, if only remotely. Rachel Tuffin is on the Senior Management Team at the College of Policing for England and Wales, where she is responsible for the College's strategic programmes that identify and share knowledge and good practice for policing across England and Wales and beyond. She's also the lead on the College's UK and international training delivery and manages its responsibilities as a What Works centre that houses one of the world's most useful repositories of knowledge about the effectiveness of police strategies and tactics. She previously worked in research for the UK's National Policing Improvement Agency and the Home Office. She's published numerous research studies on topics ranging from neighbourhood policing to advancing recruitment and career progression for minority ethnicity police officers. Rachel was also a member of the first Home Office Task Force sent to Macedonia to coordinate the evacuation of refugees from Kosovo, and she is fluent in French, having worked as a trainer, interpreter and course director in northern France. She was awarded an OBE in 2013 for services to policing, and specifically for championing evidence-based policing. We had a socially distant chat, a mere 3,600 miles away, thanks to the miracle of science. She got me up to speed on some of the initiatives that the college is leading and some of the challenges it has faced, but look, in all honesty, I spent most of the conversation just keeping my fingers crossed that the technology wouldn't crap out on me. Oh, I just lost you for a minute. Speak, speak again. Are you surviving lockdown? Am I surviving? Yeah. Okay. I've been very fortunate, really. My partner, Eric, looks off. There you go, then. Does everything? Cooking, washing, the whole deal? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a bit of an artist as well. And, and an artist, too. Yeah, he is, too. Yeah. I was also looking through your bio. We both spent time in the East End of London. We did. I was born within the sound of Bow Bells, which makes me, strictly speaking, a proper cockney. You are old school proper cockney. You went to university in East London as well, didn't you? I didn't go to a university there, actually. I escaped. I went to Nottingham because, you know, that age, I think I was 19 or so. You know, you want to get away from your parents, don't you? I love my parents dearly, but of course, you know, you want to, you want, everybody wants to escape. Don't worry, they won't listen to this podcast. Nobody does. <laughs> I said that quickly. I love my parents. Uh, yeah, no, I went to um, Nottingham, but when I came 
back from Nottingham and some time um, in France, which is where I met my partner, Eric. I went to work at the University of East London. So that was where I got my first research job. It was great, actually. I was started off doing interviews with young children about the potential for victimisation in a particular neighbourhood in East London. So I had to learn very quickly about the sorts of interviewing techniques that you need to use with children in terms of, you know, not putting words in their mouth, you know, cognitive interview stuff. Yep. It was absolutely fascinating. And I was kind of hooked from then on. I was really lucky as well, actually, because I, I got to do a lot of crime and community safety projects, which then meant that my path into policing research then led away from there. But that was all around Mile End, wasn't it? The University of East London's around there, isn't it? It's got new sites now. Back in the day where I was, was in Stratford, and, and it was all round Newham, so all of the urban re- regeneration at Stratford and Canning Town. And... Well, I used to police all around Bowen Limehouse, and I lived in Forest Gate. Which is where I live now. It doesn't look like you're in Forest Gate. <laughs> <laughs> You've made it look lovely. <laughs> How very dare you. Forest Gate is a very lovely place. <laughs> Actually, it's even getting a bit gentrified these days. We've got a blooming microbrewery around the corner under the railway arches. Oh, that's great. You get all the nice things as soon as I leave. Fabulous. <laughs> so what's the commute in to, uh, like to uh, the College of Policing? At the moment, zero, of course, it being still pretty much lockdown for us. I think the, the problem for us comes, I don't know what, what you're finding, it's if you're trying to do anything creative with more than one other person. So this is fine, like you and I can have this conversation. Yep. If you're trying to do something together with a group of people come up with some new ideas, create something new. It's, it's much more difficult. You can't do that sort of interrupting of each other easily and fluidly and basic things like play around with post-it notes and, you know, that kind of stuff just really doesn't work at all. I think the contribution to modern policing in terms of ideas generation of the post-it note is sorely underappreciated. <laughs> It's so true. So true. Yeah. And also, of course, for us, a big part of it is getting operational police officers kind of voices into what we do and their understanding. So we're very much dependent on the kit at their end. It's much easier for us to rock up to a police station and run a session with a load of frontline officers if we've got to then contend with all of their sort of different virtual connections as well as ours it all becomes a little bit more sticky and also that face-to-face work is hugely important frontline police officers are not like us in terms of spending forever on zoom meetings you know seven out of eight hours every day so it's for us it's becoming uh, unfortunately almost a normal environment but i don't think Mm. for frontline officers it is at all and so for them the opportunity to open up it is much more about chatting to somebody over a cup of tea and post-it notes absolutely and again you know if you've got a group of them making it fluid and you know, so people can interrupt each other and get ideas off each other you know in, in I, i've been fascinated by that actually how clunky things are when you can't do fluid interruption you know what i mean yep. when you're in a room together somehow that just works it must be partly to do with body language and eye contact so people pick up a cue you know from another person that they're about to stop talking and they pick up smoothly from there just doesn't work does it on no. zoom and things like that it's clunk 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 interrupt oh that no, you like go. That all yeah. the time. No, no, you go. No, you go. But, all right. Yeah. No, no, you go. All right. No, me. What? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. You've been at the college since it started in 2012, haven't you? I have. Yeah. December 2012. It was. Does it resemble now what you thought it would be back in, back then? Oh, that's a good question. Yes, I think it does in in some ways, and in others it doesn't. I suppose that's a classic kind of answer, isn't it? It's a very academic answer. Uh, isn't it? <laughs> oh no. Um, so I think that in the ways that it does resemble what we were looking, for, we've come a long way in embedding an evidence-based policing approach in what we do, at least, and in how we work for policing. We've created evidence-based guidelines 
We've put evidence-based policing into the curriculum, into parts of the promotion system. So yeah, in that way, I think so. We've got that grounding on evidence-based policing. I think where maybe we haven't so much is in how far we've come down the the track of embedding all of that, you know, but it's pretty impressive, really. I suppose I shouldn't denigrate it because if you compare it to other sectors like medicine and you look at how far we've come in a very short period of time towards giving frontline officers and staff all of that sort of evidence-based support and guidance, we've come a long way. Um, You're comparing to other sectors, but if you think about just the world of policing, There really is at the moment, I don't think, anywhere else comparable to the College of Policing for England and Wales, is there? No, I don't think there is. I think New Zealand have a centre for evidence-based policing, which has got some really bright people doing some innovative work. But that doesn't have the kind of scope, I don't think, that the college has, does it? No, and I think it is different in that we're an an independent organisation as well. So New Zealand have that centre inside policing, which is brilliant, actually. I think it's a really good thing to have, and and all police forces should have such things, developing, generating new ideas, innovation, testing, new studies, new research. Brilliant. But what we do, I suppose, is slightly different. So we're bringing together the evidence base in one place, systematising it, putting it into toolkits, making it easy for people to access it. So we do that for the whole um, England and Wales, but other people use it as well, of course. People use it all over the world. Now, in not long after the College of Policing started, you were awarded the OBE for people listening from outside the UK. Rachel is uh, a, an officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire. So congratulations for that. <laughs> the award was for your contributions to evidence-based policing. Y- you've been one of these kind of almost unsung heroes beavering away at evidence-based policing even before it was kind of cool and sexy. And yes, everybody, evidence-based policing is cool and sexy. What led up to that? It was largely based on what I'd done in in neighbourhood policing, and that's where you can see how far we come. Neighbourhood policing and problem solving within neighbourhood policing was just a terrific way of us being able to get more evidence-based activity. It was also probably one of the first evaluations I'd done where we actually got a result, which was pretty major. And a lot of that was to do with how much implementation support was done by policing. How was neighbourhood policing really be kind of a decade ago before then? I think there would, there'd been cycle. A guy called Tim Codwin in the Met used to talk about the reinvention cycle. So you'd have a big focus on it and then it would sort of fade away as there was more focus on burglary, car crime, you know, vehicle crime. And then there'd be a kind of recognition that there perhaps been a lot of focus on those kind of target areas, less focus on what was going on in neighbourhoods, and we kind of swing around again. Isn't that always the case? You know, after a while, we reinvent something that we already had a while back. We give it a slightly different name and somebody gets promoted. (laughs) You could look at it like that. I'm quite relaxed about that if it means that we make a little bit more progress each time. So sort of relabeling and things like that, I'm quite relaxed about. Yeah, that we go beyond what we had already and take a further step forward. And I think that's what's happened with evidence-based policing. We've come out of the sort of narrow, within individual topics version of evidence-based policing. So you get it in a pocket in domestic abuse or in a bit in neighbourhood policing. And now it's becoming much more part of the system, I think. And now you're also in charge of the What Works Centre? So that grew out of recognition that we needed just to bring all in one place what we know about crime reduction. That's a huge challenge worldwide. I mean, there are, <laughs> there are a gazillion different sources and databases and web pages. I mean, if somebody was coming into this new or even somebody fairly experienced, unless you can dedicate full time to it, it's a daunting task just trying to understand where the evidence is around policing, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And so we were conscious that we really needed to do something about that before we did anything else. So saying that we need to do more and more research in policing and in crime reduction, there's lots of things we haven't studied yet. But we were basically saying, yeah, fine, but 
we also need just to know what we know. Yeah. And there's no one place where you can go and find what is the best available evidence on crime reduction right now. And that's the, the first thing we wanted to do. There's so much desire for innovation. Sometimes it's nice just to come back and go, hey, let's just remember how, how we get the basics right. That's definitely right. I mean, the basics, I think, are gradually also, in England and Wales anyway, being recognised by government too. So just recently, there was a Safer Streets initiative in the Home Office where they wanted us and we did put together the evidence base and they started with that as what they would use to give out grants. And I think that's becoming increasingly normal, if you like, in our system. So what do you mean in terms of unless you're demonstrating that you're using the best available evidence, you won't get the grant? That's right. Or that you found something that you want to test and you're going to evaluate it. It's not the case in every, everywhere, but certainly in certain initiatives like that Safer Streets one, it's at its core, it was about how are we going to use the evidence base. And one of the things that I know that you guys have been working on is really stressing officer-led innovations. Yeah, definitely. Are you trying to say that academics in offices aren't able to come up with all the ideas? <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I mean, you're, you're a good example in a way, aren't you? Because you're sort of, you've crossed the, the Rubicon or whatever we call it. I'm just a mongrel, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what happens otherwise is it feels like to officers that this is stuff that's done to them. I think I think we're past this now to some extent, but it's still there a bit. You don't want them to feel like that. You want them to feel that this is theirs. This is their stuff. It's part of their professional expertise. Research, um, being evidence-based, isn't something separate, something different that other people do. It's something that belongs to you as an officer. You should be able to make your contribution um, when and if you want to. You should be able to engage, critique, challenge what the evidence is saying, have your own ideas, test new things out. I think that's a great way of putting it. I think academics can make a contribution and, you know, pracademics and, you know, well-educated, well-trained police officers and academics can certainly make a contribution to the evaluations and occasionally to the ideas. But what they're evaluating and the core of what they're evaluating has to really stem from the people on the front line and the people who are doing the job because they know it better than anybody else. Mm. And we've started now this thing we've called the Ideas Map, woohoo, jazz hands, <laughs> where we're getting officers to share their ideas and then we're kind of sifting through those, working out where are ones that might be things that we could evaluate, where are they things which actually is just really cunning little trick that we could pass on to another body in policing or pass on to forces to say, look, you could just start doing this. It doesn't really need evaluating. It's not particularly contentious, expensive or risky. Let's crack on. Is that something that you want to advertise and say where people could do it? You can find that via the College of Policing um, website. So if you, I think if you just Google the College of Policing Ideas Map, I'll do that while we're sitting here, make sure I can find it. No, that's okay. <laughs> if you Google Ideas Map Policing, it comes right up. So just the huge range of ideas so far that officers come up with in so many different categories. People might think that it would be, be about ideas to do with practice, ways that they might do their response activity, things they might want to know about victims or investigation. But of course, it's much, much broader than that. They have all sorts of problems they encounter to do with everything from mental health to missing persons. That's a huge part of their business. And they're very interested as well in how the bigger system, how the bigger force works around them. So they have ideas about how the organisation could do things better too. Oh, that's great. Are you finding commonalities across forces, kind of glaring things that are problems in policing for England and Wales generally? So I had to look through, because 400 is not too many. I was, you know, really interested. So I had a quick scroll through all of them. Nothing leapt out at me, actually. And that's another thing that you notice about policing. The individuals, they're so diverse. They've got so many different perspectives. They're, their experience in their own forces is so different that they often actually are coming up with all sorts of different ideas across the board. Yeah. That's fascinating. And you have about 400 entries at the moment? 
yeah, at Colonial, we didn't do any sort of big marketing push or anything like that. It was just putting it out on social media. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, if any British police officers are listening, here's your opportunity. Log on to the College of Policing's website and give them your ideas. Yes, please do. It's a key part to so much of this is getting ideas from the field. I mean, the, the things that I've had a chance to evaluate have pretty much always originated with policing. And I think there's a great value in tackling things that actually originate with policing because you already have the buy-in for people going, I've got this really good idea. Can you help me find out whether it's a viable one, whether it works or not? Yeah. And sometimes, you know, a tiny bit of resource they might need or a bit of help in navigating some tricky other stakeholders. So another thing we do, we have something called the trials register. So that's for people who have got a really good idea, but it's a really challenging one. So say they want to do something to change the way we police domestic abuse or something which really is risky, contentious, um, potentially expensive, all the rest of it. There's always that risk that it could go south instead of working. Exactly. And in those cases, you know, you might be up against a, a load of local stakeholders who are very edgy about what you're trying to do. They're embedded yeah. in the existing way of doing it. With this pilot's register. And the idea behind that is to when people want to do something tricky and risky, they come and tell us about it. And then we help them navigate around all the stakeholders in the criminal justice system and to smooth the path, really, if they're trying to do something difficult and contentious. And we test out and look at the evaluation idea so and the kind of design of their evaluation so we can reassure people and say yeah we think this idea is um, testable and we think they've got a good plan to test it. So the college has these two roles where at the moment you've got more than that but the two roles we've talked about so far you've got this role of being essentially the hub for all knowledge about evidence and science and what works in policing or what doesn't work as much as we know it. You've got the secondary role which is helping to develop that evidence base and working with frontline officers who've got innovative thoughts and ideas. What about the delivery of all of that into essentially the sort of structures and the standard operating procedures of policing? How does the college have a role in that? Yeah, for sure, in several different ways. So I suppose the big ones are the curriculum. We're responsible for the curriculum for um, new police officers all the way through up the ranks and into all of the specialisms. And that's required for every police department in the country? Uh, Yeah. They have to use your curriculum in their training. Yes, that's right. So if I'm trained in one force and I decide that later in my career I want to transfer to the far side, the other end of the country, then theoretically I should have been trained on exactly the same stuff right the way across the board, yeah? That's right, yeah. So we don't do the delivery necessarily. We do for some sort of niche areas, for some specialist areas. But no, the deliver- so the delivery is done usually by forces or people working with forces, but the curriculum the standard, if you like, of what, what needs to go in there is set by the college. That's one of our statutory roles. How's that been received? So because we do it in partnership, I think it's accepted part of the policing system. I think the most challenging was when we reviewed the initial curriculum. So this is for new constables in the past few years. So we did a big piece of work. We talked to lots of people about what needed to change. And as part of that, it was clear that there were lots of things missing from the new police officer curriculum, very little on cyber There was not enough on vulnerability, all sorts of new things that needed to be in there. And there was almost nothing on evidence-based policing, a minimal amount on problem solving. That probably pretty accurately mirrors most of the police academies here in the United States as well. Yeah, so there was a lot to do there. So we worked with all of the different police forces to feed in how they felt that should look. When we finished doing that piece of work, the curriculum that we ended up with 
was then at university degree level. Okay. And that was massively contentious, of course, because although we weren't setting it as a barrier, what we were really saying was you can join without this. And by the time you get to the end of your police training, you'll have reached this level because that's just what you need in order to be a police officer. But a lot of people interpreted that as meaning we were saying you have to have a degree to join the police. Right. Now, people have started to understand it and started to get used to it and started to get the point. But it's not about putting barriers in place for people before they join. It's actually about what development, what learning should they be given in order to have the best chance of being a terrific police officer. Right. And I think reflecting the idea that it's a profession, right? And a profession, you do need to have some kind of level of education. Yeah. And and it's what they get linked to the practice as well. And that's come out really strongly in some of the work that I think it was UCL did um, on this, looking at this early on, is they need to know this stuff to help them to apply it. So procedural justice is a great example. The fact that how you talk to people on a day-to-day basis in your encounters, making sure they have the opportunity to apply, making sure you're explaining a bit about the background to why you've stopped them, for example, making sure that the language that you're using in the encounter is really uh, supportive, if you like, all of that. That all helps for people to comply with the law in the future. Just to learn that in a classroom on its own is not helpful. They need to be able to tie that to, so what do I actually say then? How do I do the bit where I let them have their turn to speak and explain stuff to me? What triggers could I use? How can I build up a good rapport? It needs to be theory linked to practice. That level of procedural justice training is going to be delivered outside of the college, it's going to be delivered in the police services. Are you getting buy-in from the instructors? Because if they're not selling things like procedural justice, the importance of procedural justice, you're not going to get the buy-in from the new officers, are you? Yeah, absolutely spot on. So it's partnership, right? Academic institutions and forces working together. It's early days. So, you know, everybody's learning together. There'll be probably be a mixed picture. You know, it will be how good some of these partnerships are at feeding from each other, making sure that the theory and the practice work hand in hand. So we'll we'll see how we go. I think there's loads of scope to do some brilliant stuff, though, and to make it quite exciting and quite fun. But then I'm a glass half full kind of a person. (laughs) You're generally a glass three quarters full at least kind of person. (laughs) What do we do about training for some of the things where it's more about the craft of policing, for which there really isn't much of an evidence base yet? Yeah, that's really really good question and I I think the key thing there is all about how we work with tutor constables. A tutor constable is more commonly known as a field training officer in other places right? Yeah tutor constables and supervisors I think are under supported in policing generally like historically we've put loads of investment into leadership training for the senior ranks but actually where we really need to put our investment is in tutor constables and supervisors first because they're the most important people for new constables. They'll identify how to help them with the craft, how little tips that help you to operate as a constable. I think Sergeant is underappreciated as being probably one of the most influential, if not Definitely. the most influential rank in policing anywhere. Yeah, for sure. Moving supervisors, it can be really challenging. We run into the same things uh, in pretty much everywhere I go to because they've often done 10, 15 years in the job. They figure they know the job. And then here's this outsider, in my case, some weird English guy with a strange accent turns up to try and tell them how to, you know, they assume, tell them that they're doing it wrong. And it's, no, it's just try these different ways of thinking about doing things. And you can often run into resistance. 
You've been working on projects to try and understand how to overcome that level of resistance, haven't you? It's more about trying to identify how to do it, looking at it from their perspective. It's actually really about dealing with the point you just raised there, because what happens is in most police forces is supervisors are loaded on with all of everything comes back to supervisors, doesn't it? Right. Almost everything is a recommendation about supervision needs to be improved. And increasingly, it comes with a legal mm-hmm. stick as well, which is it's not just you didn't comply with the policy, but not complying with the policy is now an offence. It's illegal. Yeah. And, and rightly, you know, when you talk to people about this, talk to sergeants and people at that level, they will say, well, where's my time to do this? You want me to get out there more. So so let's say, for example, this is a common one. We need supervisors to be out there more with officers, watching what they're doing on the ground, engaging with them, mentoring, coaching, you know, doing all that great stuff. And the supervisors are like, yeah, great. Okay. And when exactly am I supposed to have time to do that? Because you've put in loads of quality assurance functions. I have to sit behind a desk checking all these records and making sure that people have filled the paperwork. It's an incredibly challenging job. I mean, go back last 20, 30 years. And the pressure that's put on supervisors now is incredible compared to how it was. Yeah. And I think there are real choices. I've spoken to a few chief officers about this and it's really challenging. So they're trying to make space for some of this and make more space for supervisors to be able to spend more time with their teams, get out more on the ground, do all the things that's supposed to help with reflection. So getting officers to think about what they've been doing in particular incidents and learn from those and, you know, do all the continuous professional development stuff. And so your perennial issues project is really about understanding how to make those changes because we understand the changes that have to be made, but we just don't see them actually happening. Is it, Have I got that right? So we will get recommendations from lots of different bodies that officers need training in and officers need guidance on stop and search, mental health, domestic abuse. You know, the list will go on and on. And there comes a point when you think, well, is that really right or is there something else going on here? So is the perennial issues project really about identifying those things where we know we could do things better, but trying to figure out why we haven't been able to move there? Yeah, it is actually, because what we found when we analyse sort of all the like the pattern across recommendations that we get is that it's the same things that keep coming up in these different topic areas. So supervision will get repeated over and over again. Data quality, data analysis, being better at prevention, being better at partnership working. They're the same things. I'm sure you'll see this in forces all over the world. So we're starting to get a better sense of the kind of science and evidence around what we should do better. But in many cases, that doesn't change. You're starting to understand some of that? Yeah. So building on those perennial issues, we then need to know, okay, so how can we help to to change this situation? And we've been using this model that UCL developed. That's University College London. Oh, yeah. Sorry, University College London. Capability, opportunity, motivation, leading to behaviour change. And when we look at what we do a lot in policing, there's loads of work on capability, but almost nothing on opportunity and motivation. So that's when you realise, oh, okay, that's why we're struggling to get some change here. Because, for example, opportunity, there's no time. The officers have no time to do it. So, you know, in the case of supervision, where's the time for the supervisors? Or motivation, what's really being valued in their force? What, get, what do they get rewarded for? Is all the checking and the notice all about these forms that you have to make sure are filled in on the online system? Or do you get reward and recognition for doing really great supportive work with individual police officers? I wonder so much seeing where policing is at the moment and the demand being put on policing for supervisors. What's being thrown at them is just too many sticks and not enough carrots. Yeah. And, you know, what's happened over time 
is we've put more and more into the system to try and manage, remove, not just manage, remove risk from the system, which of course is impossible. But it means that everybody in policing is carrying this massive burden of risk checking and risk removal attempts to try and take everything out of the system. And that's a real problem, I think. What do you mean by risk in this context? So, for example, so we've got grading systems for missing persons and there'll be high risk, medium risk, lower risk. And that understanding is what affects what police officers and forces will then do when they're looking for a missing person. Now, getting it right. So did you get the right risk level to get the right actions? So you need people to check. Did they make the right decision? That could then have consequences when the media or other commentators later down the track say, oh, well, you know, something different should have happened. They didn't grade it right. They didn't, you know, they didn't deal with the risk right. Is that level of checking seen by the front lines and frontline supervisors as a way for the systems to learn? Or is it seen by them as a way to punish officers that get it wrong? Because I think that how they perceive how that checking is taking place is going to hugely influence and impact how they approach that task, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And And I think it varies. So it varies both within forces and sort of cultures in forces. But also, I think most forces try to give officers the feeling that the that forces has their back, you know. That's nice to hear because I'm increasingly getting the sense in modern policing that there is no scope for honest mistakes. And I think that's inevitable in any kind of job that involves human beings and interactions with the public and a lot of decision-making that's done in a time constraint. Um, I think you would still definitely hear officers say the opposite to what I just said, just to be clear. Right. From your position, kind of 30,000 feet above all the individual forces, do you think that that's down to individual forces, the cultures of individual forces, or is it more down to the supervisors of the supervisors? I think it goes way beyond that. So I would take it completely out of policing, actually, and point the finger a little bit more here at the media, at government, at, at society in general, all of us. And that's part of the problem is we are way above. I mean, we try to be closer to policing in the college, but, you know, people commenting on it and seeing it from the outside, it's all very easy with the benefit of hindsight to say you should have done this or you should have done that. There's almost no allowance, I think, in the public understanding of what goes on in these situations of the massive cognitive load on officers and on the system in the force at the time when all of this is going off. That's certainly the case in uh, here in the summer of, or late summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's what I think we probably need to do something we can do more of. That capacity for the public understanding that sometimes decent people make genuine mistakes seems to have disappeared in the last six months. I'd agree. I absolutely agree with that. And it's difficult, isn't it? Because you do see some examples where everybody agrees that's wrong. Uh, we have something called the barred list and the officers should now go on the barred list and shouldn't be allowed to be in policing and all the other officers in, in policing would agree with that and say yeah we shouldn't have an officer like that in there but you know some of that seems to creep into sort of suggesting that none of them could ever make an honest mistake a bit like you just just said that we should they, that they, they somehow should always be able to get everything right or and or their their bosses should be able to manage all the risk remove all the risk you can't do that no, it, because you can't anticipate all the potential risks that are going to come up. After a while, you have to rely on in the, the, the individual goodwill and smart thinking of people because you cannot have a policy for absolutely everything. Exactly. And that's why, going back to what we were talking about the perennial issues, 
you want to get those core things right. So get the core support and skills right for officers and not keep ladling information about individual topics all over them all the time because you can't expect them to remember all that stuff when they're dealing with hundreds of different kinds of incidents over the course of a a month or so. You need to focus more on the core and less on teaching them and giving them guidance on every single policing issue they'll face. It reminds me, I'm going to paraphrase here, but it reminds me of a situation that I read about, I think uh, the German General Rommel said in the Second World War, he said the British have the best military manuals in the world. Thank God they don't read them. (laughs) Well, that's absolutely right. And we know that, you know, we've got a lot of guidance, which can be useful for the specialists. But frontline officers don't use it, nor should they, you know, because what we need them to be really sound on is their core skills and the core stuff that they use every day. We should be much better for the rare stuff, giving them access to what they need very quickly online in an easily digestible format. We're not very good at that at the moment. We need to do much better on that. Yeah, I think that's a great way of thinking about it. I go to too many places, they say, well, we have this policy. And then you go and find the policy on dealing with domestic violence or dealing with child abuse or dealing with things that officers come up against at two o'clock in the morning on a winter's night. And the policy is borderline impenetrable to understand, but also they make no effort to try and help the frontline officers apply the policy in an easy way. There are no mnemonics or there's no kind of, here's a bullet point of six things you should do at these kind of things that they can just pull out on their phone and very quickly look at and tick off to make sure they've done those six or seven things. But rather they're expected to know a policy that's 40 pages long and kept in the chief's office. Absolutely. And that's where you have to use operational officers to do that stuff for you. Great example during COVID, we were talking about procedural justice earlier and how you make that sort of applied. So operational police came up with the four E's. So and the four E's are, um, I'm going to get them wrong now and in the wrong order, which is really annoying. Engage, explain, encourage. And only if those have failed, do you enforce in the case of the COVID regulation. That's great. Say those again. Engage, explain, encourage and only enforce if those first three E's haven't worked for you. That sounds like that could apply to just about every aspect of police interaction mm-hmm. with the community outside of COVID-19. It's, it Spot sounds on. great. It sounds great for everything, right? Yeah. And, so, and they're really good at that. So operational police would be really good at working out ways of communicating to each other in snappy ways to give them just what they need when they walk into a situation. Because when they walk into a situation, this is what, again, you know, public and others don't quite get is you think about the cognitive load, right? Officer walks into scene. They've got to think victim, maybe safeguarding other people as well as the victim. They need control of the scene. They need to make sure that order is maintained. They need emergency response. Potentially, is anybody dying? Is there anybody wounded? They need to do first lines of investigation. What kinds of things do I need to think about investigatively here? Then they need to do, oh, yeah, by the way, procedural justice. Let's make sure that everybody feels like the police are a legitimate force and that I am, you know, taking everybody with me in this scenario. And oh, and all the rest of it, plus there could be other people filming me. I need to make sure that I've got that in mind as well. Try and make sure I'm not nothing I'm doing could be misinterpreted by people taking little clips of this and using it out of context. <gasps> Can you imagine? Perish the thought. The public would never do that, (laughs) would they? Take clips and take them out of context? No, come on. Of course, sometimes bad videos are not out of context, unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. And so how good are we at making sure that we've done the right groundwork with all of our new officers when they come in so that 
they can be comfortable walking into that. All, I mean, they're doing it all the time anyway, you know. So how good have we been at, at preparing them for that, basically? Yeah, I, I was out uh, on a ride along last night with some officers in Philadelphia through, uh, through the midnight. Just a bunch of great guys, but youngsters. And I was like, wow, I can't imagine what it'll be like to join policing now. There's so much more pressure. There's so much greater expectations. Mm. I was thinking that incident I was just describing. So the officer walks in, right? All, all of those things, all of that cognitive load. I didn't even mention their own safety, yeah, which is a massive deal, of course. And they're trying to do all of those things. And they've got to think about their own safety, the safety of other officers as well. And increasingly, I think that's something they're aware of because we, we've seen quite a few extreme scenarios recently. The final thing I wanted to talk to you about was you've got this looking to the future, the operating environment for 2040, which is 20 years out in the future. That seems awfully optimistic that we have any idea what the world is going to look like in 2040. First of all, is there even going to be a bloody planet in 2040? <laughs> so, um, well, it, it tackles all of those kind of potential scenarios, except total non-existence. And so it doesn't deal with that as a scenario. The future operating work tries to look what's next for, for policing and to look at all of the different influences that could happen. So it combines different possible scenarios. So scenarios where we've got extreme climate change, scenarios where we've got extreme political change. And it puts those together and tries to come up with themes and things that look like they're quite plausible, no matter which of those scenarios you, you go down as things that the policing will need to cope with. So, and actually, of course, some of them are already starting now. Good one is um, disinformation or misinformation. In what way? Like deep fakes and the kind of move from that being something that hostile state actors would do and specialists would do to being something that's much more generally available and easy to do with regular software. You know, if, if everybody starts to mistrust all of the sources of, of information around them, that could have some very interesting implications for, for policing, I think. Oh, good grief. It sounds horribly challenging. It, it does. <laughs> well, Rachel, it's always a pleasure. It's a shame that we couldn't do this in person over an adult beverage, which I know is our, where we normally hang out. <laughs> but uh, thanks very much indeed. I appreciate you coming and uh, spending some time with me. That's a real pleasure. Thanks, Jerry. That was episode 27 of Reducing Crime, recorded remotely in September 2020. Transcripts of every episode are available at reducingcrime.com slash podcast, and as usual, new episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore Reducing Crime. Be safe, especially in these trying times, and best of luck.